Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior, turned away God's wrath forever. By his bitter grief and woe, he saved us from the evil foe. Amen. To me, one of the most profound words that were ever written for a hymn were written 1,400 years ago. They were translated into English. It's the great Christmas hymn, A Great and Mighty Wonder. And the first stanza of that hymn says, A great and mighty wonder, a glorious mystery. A virgin bears an infant who veils his deity. And so, true God, who created everything, does not use all of his deity, all of his divinity doesn't shine through, and he needs to have his diaper changed. And if we fast forward ahead 33 years later, we don't really seem to see his deity as he's mocked on the cross and he dies there. In fact, it sounds like, it looks like a loser dying a loser's death, doesn't it? Now I emphasize it looks like because I feel blasphemous even saying that it's not the case. But that's how an unbeliever would see it. Oh, in between, we get to see some glimpses of his deity of his being God. For example, when he turns the seven barrels of water into wine when he does his first recorded miracle at the wedding feast of Cana. But oh wait, only the servants and a handful of disciples know that one. Okay, well, you know, there's the time that he, that, that he calms the sea and the waves. Oh wait, that's only the disciples are in the boat. Well, there is the time that he feeds, they just counted the men, the 5,000. There were plenty of miracles, but you know, the miracle that finally made it clear that this is somebody who's from God, if not God, is when he raises Lazarus from the dead. And that's when the Sanhedrin say, that's it, we've got to murder this guy. And during the passion, the time in which he goes to court and he ends up crucified, it isn't that he, we see his deity just glaring and shining through, and so this week, this, this Lent season, we're going to use the theme, rays of divine glory as seen in Christ's passion. And today's sermon text is recorded in John chapter 8, verses 3 through 12. So Jesus took the company of soldiers and some guards from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, knowing everything that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who are you looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas the betrayer was standing with them. When Jesus told them, I am he, they backed away and fell to the ground. Then Jesus asked them again, who are you looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they said. I told you that I am he, Jesus replied. So if you are looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the statement he had spoken. I did not lose any of those you have given to me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? Then the company of the soldiers, their commander, and the Jewish guards arrested Jesus and bound him. This is the gospel history of our Lord. With those words, I am he, and with them stepping back and suddenly being driven down, literally falling onto their backside, we get our sermon theme today as we look at rays of divine glory as seen in Christ's passion. And that is seen in Christ's act of repelling his captors. 
Now, you and I might easily miss in the English language what's going on when Jesus says, I am he, and that ends up causing the soldiers, Roman soldiers who had been trained to stand their ground to fall to the ground. But those words, I am he, if we look at the Hebrew language, one of the most common names used for God in the Old Testament was, in Hebrew, pronounced Yahweh. It's from the verb that means being. And one of the great sermons on that comes in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, when Jesus, before he's taken on human flesh, appears in the burning bush to Moses and says, I'm going to use you to lead my people out of Israel. And Moses starts going through excuses why he can't do it. I got to get my, I got homework. I got to change the car oil. I got to get my nails done. He comes up with any he could possibly think of. And in that list, he says, uh, verse chapter, Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. If I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? What should I say to them? So God replied to Moses, I am who I am. He also said, you will say this to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. See, when Jesus said those words, I am he, and they were knocked to their ground, Jesus would have been speaking either in Aramaic or in the original Hebrew language. He was saying, I am Yahweh or as we transliterated into English, Jehovah. He was saying, I am the Lord. This is the covenant name God used to reveal himself to Israel, showing he's absolutely faithful to his covenants. And true God was absolutely faithful that the Savior would be a descendant of Abraham and of David, and there he was standing before those who had come to capture him. I am he. Jesus here was confessing clearly that he is the Lord, true God, the God that all the Israelites were supposed to worship, the only God. And notice again that force, that force that took Roman soldiers who were trained, disciplined to hold their ground, and they stepped back, and then they fell over, they fell to the ground. It's amazing to me to stop and think what Jesus could have done. He could have called on legions of angels and solved this problem. Do you know, Jesus didn't even need to call on angels. He's the spokesman for the Trinity. His word is powerful. With a simple, I am he, he made them step back. Well, he could have spoke the words, and he could have simply been like a nuclear bomb going off, like a horror film leaving blood and guts dripping all over the trees as a disgusting sight. But then those men would have had no chance to ever be saved. He could have spoke those words powerfully and blew the men back a thousand feet so that ribs were crushed and bones were broken. But then how would he end up on the New Testament altar that is the cross? See, Jesus had the power to stop this. He was not, as people assume, some weakling who was bullied to the cross in a kangaroo court. No, Christ went voluntarily. And that's important for us to understand. He hid his deity. He gave them just a glimpse of it. I am he. And they fall back and fall to the ground. But he could have stopped this. It shows that Christ was willing to go to the cross so that he could save you. 
Now, unbelievers like to point out that in the Garden of Gethsemane, literally an hour earlier, he had prayed, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. But Jesus went along willingly. You see, even there in that prayer, he knew, one, all the sins of the world are going to be put on his shoulders. So the only sin that, that, that is left unforgiven is unbelief because unbelief rejects the forgiveness he won. He knew that all the sins of the world were going to be on his shoulders. He knew that for three hours he was going to suffer the pains of hell. He could only do that as true God. But he also knew as true man he was going to be flogged. Literally the flesh was going to be ripped off his back. He was going to have the nails driven through him on that cross and he refused any painkiller. And so we can understand why he could say, if there's another way, let's do this. But he still could have stopped it, and he didn't. He voluntarily went to save you. Now, probably emboldened by that, I am he, and the soldiers being knocked back and then falling to the ground, Peter, who was quick to act, steps forward with his sword and lops off the high priest servant Malchus's ear. What does Jesus say about that? Yeah! Let's put a whooping on him, boys. That's not how Jesus had it planned. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? Jesus would peacefully go to the cross to save you. Now there's a warning for us. There have been cults that have come along. There have been other religions where their way of converting is with the sword. You ride into a town, today we would say with guns, and you conquer, and then you start asking, do you believe in our God and our prophet? And when somebody says no, boom, move down the line to the next guy. You'd be surprised how quickly people will start claiming faith in, in the spaghetti monster or anything else if you're going to use that. That's not real conversion, and that's not what God wants. So it's sad when we admit confused Christians have done just this. And the most disgusting way it ever happened was the Inquisition. These words to Peter alone should have let those people who thought they claimed to be Christians there, should have let them know you are confused and this is not how we convert people at all. And it, sadly it happened in the Reformation as well when followers of John Calvin actually deceived, lied, contrary to even Calvin's teachings, to get into their government positions and then they used their government positions to force Lutherans into their beliefs, into their false teachings that contradicted the scripture. My point is when we run forward with the sword, we're not converting or using God's power the way he wants. And it never goes well for the Christian church. So we see here Christ's act of repelling his, ca his captors is important. The importance of repelling his captors here is that it shows, one, he is truly confessing he's God and he's giving them a demonstration that he is God. And it proves to you and I and even to those men that night that he was going along willingly to the cross so he could offer salvation to those men, so he could win it for them, and so that he could win it for you. Now, let's get into some of the applications. The very first application we want to get into, when we think about it, these men had just seen a miracle. I am he. Whoa! And fall down to the ground they go with a force. But you know what often happens in the Bible, and we see it in life, when people actually see a miracle of God, afterwards they go, what? Did that just happen? And then they go on with life as if it did not. And the perfect example of that is Judas. You see, Judas 
led the guards because he knew Jesus would go, was going to be there in the garden. He went there often to pray, the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas didn't need to come forward and betray him with a kiss. Jesus had just confessed several times, I am he. Even told the guards, now you let my disciples go free. We're going to get into that in a minute. So Judas didn't need to come forward and betray him with a kiss. Judas had a false god. He should have seen that as a confession again, a reminder it was true God who had become true man that he was betraying. But his mind was on that money. And when he had the money and he saw what he thought were the consequences, instead of turning to the God of grace who could have crushed him that night but didn't, instead of turning to the God of grace who for three years had allowed Judas to even do miracles himself to proclaim the good news of a Savior, instead of turning to that Savior, he despaired and sealed his fate, his unbelief, when he hung himself, cutting himself short of ever turning to God's grace again. What about that company of soldiers? They should have known better as well, shouldn't they? You see, it often happens that people will go along with what the superiors tell them, and the Roman soldier especially had been disciplined to follow orders. One of the great psychological studies was put up where a guy trying to figure out how people could go along with Hitler. Uh, he, had, he would have people come in and they thought they were giving a guy an electric shock. They would ask him a question and every time he got one wrong, they increased the shock. Now, there actually was no electricity, but the man that was supposed to be getting shocked would sit there and beg them, please, I can't take anymore, it hurts. But they had a doctor standing over them saying, he can take more, you've got to give it to him. And most of the people actually did it. That was the Roman soldiers. That was the temple guard who would come along. They'd been told to arrest him. They'd been driven down to the ground. They should have stood up and said, wait a minute. Something's not right here. We are part of a railroad job. Instead, with their swords and clubs, they advanced to arrest Jesus. They're even cruel to him, knowing just a minute before he had driven them to the ground with a simple word, in Hebrew, one word, that is, I am he, in English. They continued on. But you know, Christ allowed it to happen so that he would win forgiveness for them. And it may be that some of those soldiers that arrested him were some of the soldiers who came to faith later. There's a sermon on that in this series of Lent. We'll get into that later. Even today, we look at unbelievers, and it's kind of sad how they, they, like in colleges and things like that, and some of your greater scientists arrogantly will demand, or I'm sorry, will deny miracles. They don't want there to be any. They couldn't possibly happen. They deny them. And then when something like a tornado or a hurricane or an earthquake happens, then they quite hypocritically say, well, why didn't God do a miracle? First, they resist them. And then they turn around and demand them. We can be the same way. We see the miracle happen. Something, and we, something happens. I, I often jokingly talk about the Western or the, the, the prisoner's prayer. where Lord, Lord, if you can just get me out of this. I know I've never depended on you. And, and uh, things are looking real bad. I'm, I'm heading for the hangman's noose. And if you can just get me out of this. Well, you and I often in our own lives have probably made bargains like that with God, haven't we? Lord, if you just get me out of this, I'll go to church every Sunday. I'll be a good Christian. And the Lord actually gets us out of it. What? Did that just happen? That must have been a coincidence in how quick we are to forget the bargain we thought we were making with God. 
Those men came forward with clubs and swords and were told in other uh, gospel accounts that Jesus even chided them. Am I leading a rebellion that you need these? Remember, Jesus went voluntarily. Unbelievers will come after the Lord. And here the, the psalm, Psalm 2, stands out the best. They make their plots and their schemes and the Lord laughs at them. One way or the other, they're not going to end up coming to fruition. They are never going to overthrow God. And so, when they come after us, like Peter, we can be wrong when we pick up the sword and come back after them. A great example of what I have in mind here is when I was much younger, well-meaning Christians would blow up abortion clinics because they reasoned they had to take the doctors and the nurses' lives to protect the lives of unborn babies. When we take actions into our own hands like that, we're denying that God is in control. Sometimes God allows those things to happen for a while, but he has a plan, he has his own way, and in our country, in America, the way we stop that stuff is not picking up the sword, is not picking up bombs and explosives. We vote that stuff out and we do our best to show people the guilt that they're going to feel afterwards. And we offer them the counseling they need when they've become victims to that. Jesus went to the cross for them as well. But what about you in your own life when you have that, what? Did that just happen? It happens when Christians get confused over their conversion. Your conversion is a miracle. Left to our own devices, we are destined straight for hell because we will look at any miracle or anything else and, and deny and ignore it. As Abraham told the rich man in the account of poor Lazarus and the rich man, he wanted Lazarus to go back and warn his brothers and he said they have Moses and the prophets. That was what they called the Old Testament at the time of Christ. If they won't listen to them, they won't listen. Even if someone rises from the dead, hint, hint. You and I often would like to see some great miracle happen in our lives and we miss that God very subtly working through his word brought us to faith. We get confused and we think we made a decision for God. But no, God chose you. He sent somebody with the word. He sent somebody with the word with combined, combined with water where the Holy Spirit was sealed in your heart. There is a wonderful power in that word. Jesus said, I am he, and the soldiers fell back. Jesus sends somebody to tell you he's your savior and he's forgiven your sins and the Holy Spirit works through that message to convert you. Then you keep coming to that message because the Holy Spirit works through it to keep you in the kingdom of God that Christ voluntarily went to the cross to win for you. And just as he told the guards that night, let these men go. Who has that kind of a choice? Bunch of guys get caught robbing the bank or something like that. And one says, this was my idea. Let everybody else go. The police, do they turn around and say, oh, okay. No. They ended up having to obey Jesus in that too. But you know, that night, all the disciples flee. They miss that Jesus had protected them. One had the courage to enter and, and the access to the high priest's uh, inner sanctuary there. And he also had the courage to stand at the foot of the cross. The rest ran in fear, including Peter, who pulled out that sword. But Jesus protected them. He even came back and preserved their faith when he spoke his powerful word of forgiveness to them. So, you may worry about your neighbor. Oftentimes, we wish we had some magical phrase, mecca like a high or whatever we could say, and whammo, suddenly our neighbor would be converted. But God gives you two ways. 
Number one, because he's converted you, is keeping you and protecting you. That new man that he's given in you lives a life that simply reflects your love, his love. If your neighbors don't see you as a loving person, we have a problem. We need to come to the word and get that fixed out. So first of all, your neighbors will see God's love shining through you. You show God's love to them simply by being their neighbor and being in their lives. And when problems come in their life, then God is opening up the door for you to share the good news that God is working to convert, to keep them in his kingdom, and to protect them. Yes, today we see uh, God's glory in Christ's passion. It's seen in Christ's act of repelling his captors. The importance of Christ's act of repelling his captors was that it shows a clear confession that he is God. It shows that he went voluntarily for this. It shows that he had their salvation and your salvation in mind. It also shows for you that he is working through that powerful word to bring you into, to keep you into, and protect you in your faith. And he uses you to do the same. With that powerful word, I am he. He knocked those soldiers back. But you know, he's privileged you with a very powerful word when you tell your neighbor, Christ has forgiven you. Their sins are gone. When you tell them Christ has saved you, he works to enter their hearts and convince them that that message is true. Amen. Now to him who is able according to the power that is at work within us to do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever.